You're going to love this. Just love it. I am stuck in the middle with you right here on your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Welcome. This is your Bradcast live this afternoon in a sweltering Los Angeles. Yeah, it really is sweltering. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on your smart devices, on Progressive Voices Channel, on TuneIn and Netroots Radio and Liberal Justice Radio. You can run, but you can't hide from us. Welcome to the broadcast. Glad you could join us. Uh, another big show today, as ever, throughout the show. If you like, you can reach me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. I would love to hear from you. Um, a couple of things. Uh, first, I uh, want to get this in here. One, and I've told you this week after week, rights keep winning. Yes, it takes a while. Yes, the fight is hard, but rights keep winning. Hawaii's Governor Abercrombie has either signed or is about to sign the new marriage equality bill in Hawaii, making Hawaii the 16th state, plus uh, Washington, D.C., to offer equal rights to marriage to all of its residents. Uh, It's the seventh state this year alone. So guess what? Good guys win that fight. Again, it takes a while, but I would argue rights always win. We have setbacks. We have huge setbacks. But rights will at least eventually always win. Uh, wanted to hit the uh, the positive, the good news right off the bat at the top of the show because, as usual, everything goes downhill from here. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Clear Channel, you've heard of them, the largest... Uh, broadcast company in this nation, owner of 858 AM and FM stations across the country, owner of uh, Premier Networks, the largest uh, syndicated uh, syndicator uh, in, in the country. Clear Channel, of course, was purchased not long ago by Bain Capital LLC, company started by one guy named Mitt Romney. Clear Channel has uh, axed. Randy Rhodes, the only non-right-winger they have uh, on their airwaves, by and large. Uh, Premier used to syndicate Randy, still does, until the end of the year, but then she will be gone. I bring this up not only uh, because we've talked time and again over the years here on the broadcast about uh, the corporate control of the media and how KPFK and Pacifica Radio is an island of non-corporatist broadcasters. 
Um, but just to point out that, yeah, I know we have too many fun drives around here. I know that when you listen to the broadcast, uh, whether it's on Progressive Voices or Netroots Radio or Liberal Justice Radio, they're asking for your support. The point is, we mean it. If you want non-corporatist broadcasts anywhere over your public airwaves, please support uh, those progressive outlets uh, that do allow people like me on your air. Because uh, once again, Randy Rhodes, she will be gone. Uh, At least uh, she will no longer be with Premier. We'll see if she broadcasts after uh, December 31st. That is uh, her last day here. Uh, in the meantime, of course, you know, that's progressive news. That's we can always rely. You know, that's that's point of view stuff. We can always rely on the networks, on CBS, NBC, ABC to tell us the straight news without all of the opinion. Right. Yeah. Not so right. We talked last week uh, with Media Matters' Eric Bollert about the 60 minutes disaster that was ongoing. And when we talked Um, CBS, at that point last week, CBS was refusing to even acknowledge they had a serious problem with their pretend Benghazi exclusive and the swashbuckling hero at the center of that story who appears to have made everything up. They wouldn't even acknowledge that. That was almost two weeks since the original broadcast of that show. Uh, After we uh, went off the air last week, things began to fall apart quickly for CBS, and uh, they ended up retracting the entire report. We're going to talk about that momentarily with the great Digby, otherwise known to some lucky people as Heather Parton, uh, the great blogger Digby from Hullabaloo. She will be joining us shortly. I'll also have uh, some information, some new information, the latest information on this amazing nail-biter roller coaster of an election uh, count that has been going on for the past week in Virginia in the attorney general's race. Uh, This has been an amazing story to watch, and I think it's only going to get amazinger. Is that a word? It is now. Uh, And and, uh, I'll just put it to you this way. Uh, The two candidates are separated by 134 votes out of 2.2 million cast. And last night, as of 1159, the jurisdictions around the state certified their results. So for now, that's uh, that's the result. 135 vote margin. You'll have to stay tuned if you want to find out if it's the Republican or the Democrat ahead. That's all ahead. As well, uh, Desi Doyen with the Green News Report. As usual, she will be here with news on the devastation of Super Typhoon Haiyan uh, and this uh, remarkable story. Uh, and The typhoon's link to global warming, of course, and the climate deniers who are now sinking to an all-time low in its wake. But first, uh, Benghazi, Benghazi, Benghazi. Uh, This was the apology, if you want to call it that. This was the retraction or the correction, if you want to call it that, offered by Laura Logan last Sunday at the very end of the show, at the very end of 60 Minutes, after their Benghazi report with their uh, super swashbuckling witness had completely fallen apart. I'm going to play the entire apology because it's only about 90 seconds. We end our broadcast tonight with a correction on a story we reported October 27th about the attack on the American Special Mission Compound in Benghazi, in which Ambassador Chris Stevens and three other Americans were killed. 
In the story, a security officer working for the State Department, Dylan Davies, told us he went to the compound during the attack and detailed his role that night. After our report aired, questions arose about whether his account was true when an incident report surfaced. It told a different story about what he did the night of the attack. Davies denied having anything to do with that incident report and insisted the story he told us was not only accurate, it was the same story he told the FBI when they interviewed him. On Thursday night, when we discovered the account he gave the FBI was different than what he told us, we realized we had been misled and it was a mistake to include him in our report. For that, we are very sorry. The most important thing to every person at 60 Minutes is the truth. And the truth is, we made a mistake. Yeah, they made more than just a mistake. Uh, and I want to talk about the details of that apology in a second. Uh, but we've learned more also about Laura Logan, the CBS correspondent, uh, over the last few days. Thanks in no small part to my guest, uh, Heather Parton, better known as Digby from the uh, Hullabaloo blog. Uh, I've tried to have Digby on my show for years, have never been lucky enough to get her until today, and I'm delighted about it. Oh, Heather, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. I'm glad I finally was uh, able to connect up with you. I know, and the crazy part is you're in L.A. You're part of the great Los Angeles blog <laughs> contingent, and I can't even get you on, on the show. I might as well be in, you know, London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How easy it is to get together on this. Exactly. Well, it's great to have you here. Okay, well, uh, first, uh, before we get to the details on, on Laura Logan that, that you highlighted for a lot of people uh, on Sunday, um, uh, you heard the apology uh, at the end of 60 Minutes on Sunday. So, Digby, apology accepted from uh, CBS 60 Minutes? <laughs> well, I think it was a little thin, don't you? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, first of all, just if you look at the apology, she, you know, we were misled and we shouldn't have had him be part of part of our story. Uh, he was the story. It was... There really was very little else in the story except for Laura Logan's assertions uh, and this gentleman, what's his name? Dylan, Dylan Davies. Morgan Jones. Morgan, uh, uh, his fake name was Morgan Jones. His real name was Dil- Dylan Davies. Right. Yeah. And, and, I mean, it was just the two of them telling this story with a couple of, you know, additional people weighing in very, very, um, you know, mm-hmm. lightly, shallowly on the subject. Uh, so really, it was all about him. So that apology is rather silly. I mean, in effect, if you say that, you know, we shouldn't have had him as part of the story, the story would have lasted for about 25 seconds, exactly. and that would have been all they had. Right. So it's really a retraction, although they interestingly um, refused to call it that. Uh, they called it a correction. E- even still, yeah. I mean, uh, Josh Marshall over at Talking Points Memo had said that if you'd come across this 90 seconds without knowing anything that had happened over the last couple of weeks, you'd probably think that one person interviewed in a 60-minute segment may have been misleading in some of the things he said, when in fact, this guy was the entire story. Uh, they also had uh, a problem with their with their book published. Uh, this guy had a book that was coming out two days later. It was uh, uh, to be published by a uh, Simon and Schuster uh, imprint called Threshold Editions. 
CBS owns Simon & Schuster. They didn't disclose that during the broadcast. Neither did they apologize. They, they apologized, I think, to the New York Times about it. But Laura Logan didn't bring that up in her, quote unquote, uh, correction either on Sunday night, Digby. No, she certainly didn't. And, you know, that's that's pretty relevant because... There's an interesting sort of side story that goes with that. Apparently, this same guy had been shopping this story elsewhere. And Fox News, of all yes. outlets, the Benghazi, also known as the Benghazi Network, mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, pulled the plug on doing a story with him because he asked for money. Yes. So, you know, when you're looking at this, <laughs> at this sort of, you know, you step back a little bit and see that there was a book deal in process, presumably, uh including a contract for a bunch of money, and then the sort of synergy between that and 60 Minutes, it starts to look very ugly. Certainly, one can see it as, you know, we don't know the details, but they certainly have refused to address the fact that there is a, you know, a little odor of pay-to-play here um, on this story, which considering how bad the story is and how Mm -hmm. this person has turned out, it's a hoax, essentially, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of a big deal that they in, you know, sort of a, um, you know, a, a roundabout way have paid for for a hoax. It, it just gets worse and worse. It, yeah, that and they, then there's Laura Logan. Uh, yeah, that they paid for the hoax and that they didn't even, uh, you know, mention that as part of their thin, as you said, uh, correction. I should note Simon & Schuster has uh, pulled that book uh, off the shelves. Uh, the uh, Threshold Editions uh, pr- produces books by Dick Cheney and Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and that that crowd, you would think that CBS would have uh, been concerned about that before they jumped into a story like this. But apparently, the reporter here, Laura Logan, as we've learned from uh, from your report, uh, Digby, uh, seems to have sort of a Fox News sort of uh, bent to her. Let me play uh, one of the clips that you highlighted last week. Um, or just actually say a few days ago from a speech that she gave back in October of uh, of 2012 this would have been right after the uh, September 11 2012 attack at Benghazi uh, well let's let, she, where she talks about exacting revenge against these people let's listen to this and uh, and then I'll get your thoughts on it Heather and when I look at what's happening in Libya there's a big song and dance about whether this was a terrorist attack or a protest and you just want to scream for God's sake. Are you kidding me? The last time we were attacked like this was the USS Cole, which was a prelude to the 1998 embassy bombings, which was a prelude to 9-11. And you're sending in FBI to investigate. I hope to God that you're sending in your best clandestine warriors who are going to exact revenge and let the world know that the United States will not be attacked on its own soil, that its ambassadors will not be murdered, and the United States will not stand by and do nothing about it. That was Laura Logan of CBS 60 Minutes talking about uh, wanting the U.S. to use its best clandestine warriors to exact revenge and let the world know that the U.S. will not be attacked on its own soil. Uh, Heather, you, you pulled this out for me, brought this to my attention at, uh, at, at your site, at uh, Digby's blog. 
what what do you what do you make of this? Is is it a reporter not allowed to have an opinion about uh, when America is attacked? No, absolutely not. I mean, I don't disagree. You know, obviously, I disagree strongly with Laura Logan's worldview, which if you go and look at uh, many of her public comments over the past few years, it's pretty clear that she's a very, very hardcore um, war hawk, uh, particularly on the, quote, war on terrorism. And she is a believer in, you know, <laughs> in retribution and revenge and basically, you know, this whole take them out kind of attitude that's really reminiscent of the way people were much closer to 9-11. In fact, what, one of the odd things I find about looking at her speeches in recent years, including that one, is just how, you know, sort of casually she assumes that everyone agrees with this, uh, when in fact I think that most of the public has developed a much more kind of nuanced view of what's going on. So, you know, she's, she's really in a, in a kind of a bubble, I think, of this, this world in which these, you know, as she calls them in another speech she gave, or another talk she gave with Marvin Kalb at the press club, um, a little bit earlier than that, where she was talking about dark forces that are trying to take us back centuries, you know, and I think we know what she's talking about there. So she has a very strong... Democrats, Obama, that's who she's talking about. So. <laughs> no, exactly. So she has a very strong worldview, and I, you know, and I have to say that that's okay. You know, reporters are allowed to have, I, you know, I'm a kind of a believer in advocacy journalism. I think this illusion that these people are, you know, objective is sort of foolish. Mm -hmm. and nobody's really objective, and it's kind of a ridiculous construct that's been built around journalism. Mm -hmm. And there's a law, an ongoing argument about that going on in, the, in journalism itself. But in her case, she doesn't present herself as a person with a point of view. Certainly, 60 Minutes is not known to be, you know, an advocacy sort of program, the way you might think of, you know, someone like, you know, Bill O'Reilly or, or Chris Hayes on the other side. I mm -hmm. mean, they're supposed to be this straight news network, and I'm sure all the people who turn into it, they, you know, they're assuming that they're getting that view from nowhere, as, you know, pr uh, journalism professor Jay Rosen calls it. Right. Um, and that is just not the case with her. And when you go back and look at, and I remember thinking this back in the day when, when she was, she was a harsh Iraq war critic back in the, in the mid, uh, 2000s during the Bush administration. And I think that a lot of, of progressives and thought that, you know, she was really a truth teller. And, and she was. But her point of view then, and I remember thinking it, which is why I kind of went and dug into her a little bit when this latest, uh, little flap came about, um, because her argument about the Iraq war was never that, you know, it's wrong and we shouldn't be here, other than in the most superficial way where, you know, it's just a big loser, so, you know, let's get the hell out. But it, what she was complaining about was always that, that you know, the military's hands were being tied. <laughs> we weren't, you know, that we, we weren't, weren't doing enough. allowing them to get the job done. That was her. That was her critique, and I don't think people heard that. But that's where she's coming from, and she has a very, very strong point of view. And I think, at least judging from the McClatchy uh, article that just came out today, talking about the 60 Minutes flap, they went and, and basically looked at the rest of her story, however small it was, on Benghazi, mm -hmm. and it's full of other holes as well. It's not just this guy, this hoax artist, con artist that conned her. It's her assertions throughout it that, you know, Al, it's, it's now been firmly established that al-Qaeda was behind the attack. That's just not true. They don't actually know, and al-Qaeda's never taken taken credit for it, and... Um, 
the you know the local Libyan terrorist group, which has an entirely different agenda. It's a local political agenda, uh, which operates sort of they think maybe with Al Qaeda's kind of maybe. They haven't, you know, <laughs> they're probably more likely to have been the ones. And in any case, experts everywhere are not nearly as sure of themselves as Laura Logan is. She just knows. And as you you could hear from that that clip that you just played of her one month after the attack, she already knew what she knew. And she was apparently unwilling to hear anything differently. So along comes the swashbuckling hero. And by the way, that's another sort of underlying theme with her. She has a real um, reverence and you know, kind of kind of excited impression of the mercenary and the soldier and these guys who are out there trying to save us all from the from the terrorists. It comes through as a theme in in a lot of her work. It, it does, um, and she was incredibly supportive of him in, in interviews afterwards. She clearly thought yeah. that he was uh, you know heroic what he did. Uh, I'm speaking with Heather Parton, pseudonymously known as Digby from the uh, great blog Hullabaloo. Baloo. Uh, Heather, how much of that, um, uh, you know, rightward leaning, let's call it, that Laura Logan had, how much of it do you think uh, led to uh, this sort of report not, you know, checking her facts, but more importantly, the sort of the double standard that I think we saw, that we went two weeks almost without CBS even acknowledging the problem with their story, which was apparent uh, about a day or two later after they initially broadcast on October 27, I think it was, how much of uh, her political leanings uh, feed into bringing this type of story forward and then denying that they even had a problem for a full two weeks. And then we finally got this, you know, very uh, thin apology that, uh, you know, would be a Fox News version of an apology if they ever apologize <laughs> for anything. Which they never would. Right. Um, well, I, And they didn't apologize here, by the way, either. You know, they, they were citing CBS. That's oh. one of the dangers. Citing, oh, look, even 60 Minutes agree we were right. They've got reports from this guy, from Dylan Davies, that they were proud about. Oh, we reported on what Dylan Davies had to say years ago. And Fox hasn't bothered to retract anything uh, since the entire story has fallen apart. So, sorry to right. derail No, no, there. and not to mention, you know, Lindsey Graham, who on the basis of this report decided to hold up on all of uh, the Obama administration's, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, nominations, and he didn't back off either. I mean, he said, no, I, you know, yes, I know that, that I'm, I'm making no sense here, but I'm still not going to back off. Exactly. Uh, you know, whatever. Right. Um, which John Stewart did a really great bit on, if, if anybody wants to watch he it. He did. John Stewart um, and uh, Stephen Colbert. We, oh, we put, was, it was brilliant. Yeah, well, we put um, both of them at bradblog.com, by the way. You should go <laughs> yeah, look at them. Too, and at Digby's. Yeah, go ahead. But I do think that, you know, your point about, um, you know, why CBS hasn't retracted this. I think it's quite clear that CBS... Well, first of all, there are a couple of things. One is you've got Laura Logan, who clearly has a very, very hawkish uh, worldview. You've got, um, I think, what's his name, David Rhodes, who is the new head of CBS News. He um, came from Fox. I mean, that's where he came up Mm. during the, you know, the most kind of, uh, (laughs) you know, the most tabloid um, side of their you know, of their uh, growth mm-hmm. during the late 90s and mm. up into the 2000s, and he was with Bloomberg. I think the guy probably 
has grown up in a right-wing atmosphere, let's just put it that way. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on his journalism, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it's you lie down with dogs and that's what you get. Um, But the other part is is that I think after the Dan Rather scandal, I'm sure you remember this, all of us who were blogging this like crazy, Mm -hmm. they actually, I mean, they backed off hard and were actually called on it by the White House on the Dan Rather story. They were, you know, there were meetings set up. Remember Andrew Hayward, who was the president at that time, had mm-hmm. to, was called up to the White House and given a brow beating. And there was this, you know, I think they were intimidated by by the right wing and have been, you know, pulling their punches at the, at the least ever since then. I mean, this may be a case where the old playing the refs thing, which you as a blogger, you know, know, know about mm-hmm. that. They're playing the refs, yeah. They're playing the refs. Um, I think that this has worked. And so you even have, you know, like Jeffrey Fager, who is the, what is he, the head of the news division and the executive producer of 60 Minutes? Correct. Yeah, a, a horrible conflict of interest, because normally yeah. in a case like that, you would have, because Fager, Jeffrey Fager, as the executive producer of 60 Minutes, the last guy to sign off on, you know, seeing the final cut on this thing before air, normally the head of the news division would, uh, you know, potentially fire the guy at 60 Minutes who allowed this to go on the uh-huh. air. Well, right now, they are the same guy. So he spent two weeks defending himself before they even acknowledge the problem here. Exactly. And even more than that, he was aware of Laura Logan's proclivities because she admits it in that speech that you showed that, that you played the clip of. Later on in the speech, she's, ta- she's there talking about the uh, story that she had recently done on Afghanistan, which also needs to be revisited because in light of this, I think a lot of what she said may, may be questionable. But it was about how we're losing Afghanistan and, you know, the you know the terrible strategy mistakes of the Obama administration, et cetera, et cetera. In that speech, she was talking about this, and she said, you know, as a journalist, as a, in fact, let me get the exact quote here because it's really you know I think important. I have this one. This is one you pulled out. Uh, let me play yeah. clip clip number three here uh, when she talks about uh, investigating and sort yeah. of uh, bias, uh, confirmation bias, and so forth. Yeah, and this is something that uh, you and I both know as bloggers that we always have to check ourselves on. And it was ironic that Laura Logan would say this in her speech uh, back in October of last year. Let me play this clip number three. G. There is a, a distinction between investigating something to find out what the real situation is and trying to prove something that you believe is true. And those are two very different things and the second one is a very dangerous thing. And it's the enemy of great journalism. And, um, and it's a trap that it's very easy to fall into. And in fact, it was, a, it was my boss, Jeff Figger, who kindly reminded me of that <laughs> at a certain point in the process here. Um, and as usual, he was absolutely right. Oh, my God. <laughs> she said there's a distinction between investigating something to find out what the real situation is and trying to prove something that you believe is true. The second one is the enemy of great journalism. It seems like she was hoisted on her own uh, okay. journalistic enemy petard there, uh, Digby. Yep. And, and clearly her boss, Jeff, who she mentioned, Jeff Fager, there, had, yeah. had called her on this on this other story. So, I mean, he was aware 
<laughs> that she had this tendency mm-hmm. to try and prove, you know, her own biases there. And, you know, the truth is, is that it's, it's not a bad thing necessarily to go into a story, I don't think. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a journalism professor, but this seems logical to me. You can go in there with the idea that you think you, you have a hypothesis, right? And you think that this certain thing has happened. But as a journalist, you also you have a greater obligation to the truth. So you can't if you go into the story and find out that it's not true or there are re- there's reason to believe that the people who are telling you things aren't telling you the truth uh you know you have to you you have to take the story where it leads i mean i guess in her case if she didn't like what she heard about benghazi uh she could have decided not to do the story i mean that would be okay you know she doesn't want to be a person who's revealing that everything we know about benghazi is non from fox news is nonsense Okay, but, you know, you can't shade the truth, and you certainly can't close your eyes to the obvious and what you're seeing here. And to me, this guy's story, and it's kind of hilarious to go back and watch it now, is is so absurd on its face that I can't believe they actually played it. I mean, his... He, he, it's this story. He climbs, scales the wall and he takes down this this lone terrorist who's there with the butt of a rifle. And yes. she says very seriously, "And what happened?" He goes, "Well, he went down." She goes, "Did you? You know, was his face bloodied or something like that?" And she goes, "Yes, it was." And it's just, I mean, it's laughable. It's the, something out of a romance. Yeah, novel. you know, one, one one of my favorite parts was when he said. Uh, uh, when he when he confronted this uh, terrorist and and before he hit him with the butt of his gun, he he couldn't believe that he had seen him because it was so dark. I know. Which it was so dark. It was so dark. Which and I heard that and I was like, um, so you mean it was so dark that nobody saw you there other than the one guy that you killed? <laughs> Apparently so, because you well, weren't that's there. Why nobody saw him? Right. Because it was so dark. Ah, oh, well, there you go. That's and it. Him, you know, peeking into the room, he saw him bath. Yes. He saw the ambassador dead on the floor. And then he saw him at the hospital, too, which I think, geez, you know, how many times are you going to run in <laughs> to the same dead body? I mean, yeah, whatever <laughs> it takes to sell the story. In the minute or two I have left here, uh, Digby, uh, in the case of the Dan Rather story, which turned out to be substantively correct in that uh, George Bush apparently did go AWOL. There's, uh, to my knowledge, no evidence that he did not. The White House at the time, the Bush administration, actually never denied the content of that. That story, to my knowledge. But what happened after uh, the Rather report, uh, they had a huge independent investigation. Uh, four producers ended up being fired along with Dan Rather. Now, just today, we're going on, I guess, three weeks since the story, uh, McClatchy reports, uh, Nancy Youssef of uh, McClatchy reports that CBS spokesman tells McClatchy that CBS is conducting a, quote, journalistic review into the report. But, um, Aren't we seeing a huge difference, a huge double standard uh, in our quote-unquote liberal media when it uh, comes to uh, this sort of a a right-wing story that nobody's reporting it, nobody's talking about it, nobody's covering it, uh, nobody is demanding uh, a head, it seems to me, at CBS the way five of them rolled after the Dan Rather George Bush story? Well, I think so, and I think it's really astonishing when you consider the the actual you know, the the substance of the two stories. The Dan Rather story was about George W. Bush when he was a kid and how he had skipped out on his National Guard service, which, yes, there were political ramifications, but it's a very shallow kind of tabloid story, really, talking about how George Bush lied about being in the military uh, in Vietnam. I mean, you know, 
Yeah, well, <laughs> wherever, Texas, heard that Alabama, story? right, I exactly. Mean, it would have been, you know, I believed it. I thought it was probably true. He was a rich kid who, you know, his dad pulled strings and blah, blah, blah. But that was in the past, and it would have had some, you know, so, sort of fun gotcha uh, consequences for, you know, for, for Bush, but nothing, it had nothing to do with what was really going on. This is completely different. Here we're dealing with a story that they're, they're holding hearings about, in in the in the U.S. Congress, that they you know we've got a president you know a, a potential presidential candidate, and Hillary Clinton, who was a Secretary of State at the time, and that's of course the real reason why this story exists at all. It's a foothold to create a sort of scandal you know scandal matrix for Hillary Clinton, and this is going to be the first one that they put on it. But it has it has tons of of ramifications and relevance to foreign policy to the way the way we are you know dealing with libya and with uh, you know other hot spots around the world and the idea that somehow that you know misleading people on a story of that kind of current relevance doesn't require even a much bigger mm-hmm. investigation than this you know ridiculous you know national guard story and you know, not to mention, you know, Dan Rather was their flagship guy since the '60s. Right. And he had, you know, not even the tiniest bit of loyalty. But they're going to the mattresses to defend Laura Logan. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and I realize she's a big star there too. I don't mean to denigrate her, her position there. But I mean, honestly, it just it, they, they, there's no comparison between these two stories. And the idea that the, it's the earlier one that would have been caused the whole network. I mean, they called in ex-attorney generals to do that Yes, they did. Well, because when uh, you tick off right-wingers, things happen. When you tick off right. uh, lefties and progressives and, you know, hippies like you, Heather, yep. uh, nobody cares. That's just fine. That that actually, uh, CBS can now be proud of that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. They can use this. And they are, by the way, using it. Yep. Well, I, was, I watched, you know, uh, certainly Fox is, um, you know, well, it's just you know, it's media matters, and it's the Clinton people, and they're all, you know, raising a big stink, and it doesn't have any meaning, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, this actually works in their favor. If And CBS, too, if what their problem is in their, in their mind, and it could even be subconscious for all I know, that they just don't want to tick off the right-wingers. Um, that doesn't work out well for them, although CBS has been the enemy of the right-wing for as long as I can remember, so I don't know what they think. Not no, anymore. Not anymore. All, all is forgiven now. Yeah, okay. Everything's fine. It's uh, all good. Yeah, it's all good. Hey, if you want to read more on this story and everything else uh, from from that guy Digby, who's always complaining <laughs> uh, that uh, the Fox News is ignoring, uh, check out Digby's blog dot blogspot dot com. One of the smartest stops on the entire internets uh, for about uh, about ten years going now. Uh, Digby, otherwise known as Heather Parton. Great to talk to you. Uh, let's not wait another 10 years before we do it again. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Brad. You bet. Thank you, Heather. Okay.
Oh, Laura. She is having a hard time. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. We're going to take a quick break and come back with the latest in the uh, Virginia Attorney General electoral count mess. Uh, You're not going to want to miss that. Plus, Desi Doyen and the Green News. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. It's the season for the annual Pacifica Radio Archives National Broadcast and Fun Drive. To preserve Pacifica's tape collection, Tuesday and Wednesday, November 19th and 20th, you will hear excerpts of the Archives series from The Vault, featuring newly restored recordings such as Adrian Rich, Che Guevara, Seamus Haney, Marianne McPartland, James Baldwin, and many more. Try to dwell on the past. Think of all the mistakes you've made and how much better it would be if you hadn't made them. Think of what you should have done and blame yourself for not doing so. And don't go easy. Be really hard on yourself. There isn't anything quite like this anyplace. This is a two-for-one drive where donors get double the gifts delivered by Christmas Eve. So mark your calendars for Tuesday, November 19th and Wednesday the 20th for the Pacifica Radio Archive's national broadcast and fundraiser heard on all five Pacifica radio stations. What is known And the evidence is clear I'm not alone There are thousands of us here This is my democracy You won't go telling me My vote don't matter anymore (laughs) Especially now if you live in Virginia And it's not worth fighting Fighting for your vote, for everyone's vote in this country. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. And they are fighting, fighting like hell for each and every vote. And I'm not kidding. Uh, Up in Virginia today, tonight, and uh, for the next couple of weeks, uh, maybe even the next month or two, uh, as this story moves forward, we've been covering this in great detail at bradblog.com. You'll remember, we talked about it last week on the show, uh, let's see, November 5th, election in Virginia, an off-off year election. A uh, I'm sorry, a Democrat uh, picked up both the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office. Unheard of, uh, frankly, for uh, in Virginia for someone of the opposite party uh, to the White House to lose in this kind of an election. But they did. Uh, Terry McAuliffe won as governor. Uh, and uh, what's his name? Ralph Northam won as lieutenant governor. The third uh, race at the top of that ticket is the attorney general's race to replace Ken Cuccinelli, the Republican who was uh, himself running and lost uh, in the governor's race. Well, this attorney general's race has been unbelievably close. 2.2 million votes cast. Now, uh, for the last week or so, the Republican Mark Obenshane had been leading Mark Herring, the Democrat, by about 1,200 or so votes. And then late last Thursday night, there's been all of these folks, uh, citizens who have been pouring over the spreadsheets. I love this story because it's about citizen oversight. And they've been, you know, pouring over the numbers in this contest. And they noticed that in heavily Democratic Fairfax County, Uh, There was about 
3,000, a little bit more than 3,000 absentee votes that appeared to not be listed in the results. Indeed, in uh, this is all in Fairfax County and in the uh, which is broken up into three different congressional districts, the 8th, 9th, and 10. And they looked at the 9th and 10th district, and there was about an 80 percent return of absentee ballots. And yet there was only about a 50 percent return in the 8th district. So they posited there must be thousands of more votes that for some reason were not included in the tally. And as a matter of fact, Ben Tribbett, a uh, a Democratic campaign consultant, uh, was the first to notice this. Then Dave Wasserman of Cook Political Report came in. Uh, These guys, uh, we call them fondly election geeks who have been, like myself, who have been pouring over the numbers. They found out uh, there was those 3,000 votes. They made the case to the electoral board in Fairfax County, which is a Republican majority electoral board, just like all of them across the state of Virginia. The way Virginia's electoral boards work in their counties is a, or in their cities, one Democrat, one Republican, and one member of the governor's party, which means right now they've got a Republican governor for the next uh, few weeks. So all of these boards are Republican majority. The Republicans on this board looked at this and they said, yeah, I think we do have a problem. And what uh, they began, to this was late Thursday night, and they said, we're going to look at this Friday morning. Friday morning, what everyone expected was they would look at these votes and they were going to be so heavily Democratic that it was going to be enough to put the Democrat Mark Herring up a head of uh, Mark Obenshane in this incredibly tight race. And in fact, it would have put up the Democrat above the Republican had it not been for about 700 votes that were discovered in heavily Republican Bedford County on that same day on Friday. Now, I've been working on this story a little bit, talking with the uh, general registrar of, uh, of Bedford County, Uh, Her name is Barbara Gunter. I'll have a little bit more on this uh, in the days ahead, I hope, at bradblog.com. But what appears to be the case is that in Bedford County, they use touchscreen voting systems, and uh, one of the election officials on the night of the election accidentally uh, called in the totals from one of those touchscreen voting machines instead of all of the touchscreen voting machines that were used in the precinct that night. So when they added those 700 votes in... Uh, the Republican was able to maintain his lead by about 100 votes. Then a few more missing uh, votes, missing results showed up in Richmond this week. That put up the Democrat finally by 100 votes. And that was before the 400 or so provisional ballots that needed to still be counted in Fairfax County, heavily Democratic Fairfax County. Before they could count those votes, those provisional votes in uh, heavily Democratic Fairfax County, they received an edict from the state which essentially said uh, you can't have an attorney representing, making the case, arguing for inclusion for a ballot, a provisional ballot, unless the voter is there. Otherwise, Fairfax was going to decide uh, you know, which votes to count, which provisional ballots to count, and which not. And by the way, they're sealed in a green envelope so they don't know how the voter voted until they open them up. They were going to finish that process, basically, uh, this uh, past Saturday until they got this edict saying, nope, uh, this came from the State Board of Elections, also Republican uh, State Board of Elections. 
um, saying that no, the attorney general, Ken Cuccinelli, agrees if the voter is not there to argue uh, for inclusion of their ballot, an attorney cannot do it for them without the voter there. So to their credit, the Republicans on that Fairfax County Electoral Board held a vote and they said, well, we reject what the Board of Elections, uh, their, their edict, their interpretation of the law, but we will follow it. And so the way we're going to do it is exercise our discretion to keep the process open for a few more days until the Tuesday certification deadline to allow voters to come forward if they wish to make the case that their provisional ballot should, in fact, be included in the count. And there's any reason for provisional ballots. Uh, somebody forgot forgot to bring the proper ID that day. They were purged from the rolls improperly. Remember, there was a 40,000 vote purge uh, that happened just before this election, thanks again to Ken Cuccinelli. Um, so they were streaming forward uh, over the past several days. They made their case. And then finally, last night, late last night, dramatically uh, in a, uh, a public meeting in Fairfax County, they counted the last of the votes, the provisional votes. They accepted the ones they were going to accept. And uh, the winner of the uh, Virginia Attorney General's race for now is Mark Herring, the Democrat, by 134 votes out of more than 2.2 million cast. Now, those are the certified totals from the uh, from the counties and the cities around the state. Those were turned in last night by 11.59 p.m., just before midnight. And now for the next two weeks, the state Board of Elections will be re-canvassing uh, votes again. We will see what we find. They have to certify the race on November 25th. And after that, these candidates, uh, whoever is the losing candidate in any case, will have the, uh, the right to ask for a recount if they want it, which is almost assuredly the case. That said, here's the problem with quote-unquote recounts in Virginia. First, most of the state, uh, or at least much of the state, cast their votes on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. The one that, uh, the type that I'm on here week after week after week complaining about, warning about, letting people know that there is absolutely no way to know ever if any vote cast on a touchscreen voting machine like that has been recorded accurately as per the voter's intent. So there is no way. Those are called direct recording electronic machines. They're usually touchscreens, uh, DREs for short. There is no way to know uh, if any of those votes were actually counted correctly. I think that would matter when you've got a 134-vote uh, margin out of 2.2 million cast. But apparently... Uh, legislatures in legislators in Virginia don't give a damn enough about their voters to have gotten rid of these uh, godforsaken machines long ago. So well, you can't count those. As a matter of fact, the election code says this. For DREs, the recount officials shall open the envelopes with the printouts and read the results from the printouts. 
If the printout is not clear or on the request of the court, the recount officials shall rerun the printout from the machine or examine the counters as appropriate. That's it. So you can't count the touchscreens. However, you've got hundreds of thousands of paper ballots that you can count, that you can examine, that you can make sure were tallied correctly by the optical scan computers that counted them in the first place. But guess what? In Virginia, the election law is such that, and I... Uh, This is just astounding to me. Instead of examining those paper ballots by hand, almost all of them will simply be run through the same optical scan computer tabulators that counted them, that tallied them in the first place. The same computers that counted them either correctly or incorrectly, who knows, the same machines that counted them the first time will be used to count them again in any quote-unquote recount in the Virginia race, at least barring a court order. And I sure hope one of these two candidates, whoever it is who asked for the recount, goes to the court and says, I would like a hand count. Because the fact of the matter is the only way to know if a paper ballot scanned on an optical scanner has been scanned correctly is to count that ballot by hand. Begging the question of if you're going to count the ballot by hand, why not just, you know, uh, count it in the first place by hand and do away with these stupid optical scanners? That's all ahead. I suspect we will be covering that in the weeks ahead. And then, oh, yes, one more point. And get ready, Desi Doyne, because you're on deck. You're coming in next with the Green News. One more point. At the end of the recount process, we're now uh, talking about uh, December when this recount will uh, most likely, at least, be underway. At the end of the recount process, there is a contest process that can happen if one of the, uh, whoever lost the recount, whoever's announced the winner of uh, of the recount, would like to contest it and say that there was fraud or there was a problem with the count or something like that. Well, that's uh, not unusual. That happens in uh, many states. There's a contest after the recount that can be filed in a court of law if the candidate wants to. In Virginia, however, guess what? That contest is not filed in a court of law. It's not adjudicated by a judge. A contest in Virginia, an election contest in Virginia for state attorney general is uh, filed in the state legislature and the state legislators (laughs) decide whether or not uh, the contest is valid. So in other words, they will be filing this contest if there is one filed with the currently Republican majority legislature legislature in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Good luck with that, Democrat Mark Herring. Enjoy your 134-vote lead right now while you got it. It may not last. All right, let's do some green news. It's not easy being green. It's not easy being Mark Herring either. <laughs> no kidding. With wow. so many other Good luck. Ordinary things. And by the way, Des, if... If Mark Herring wins that race in uh, Virginia, it'll be um, the first time in 20 years that the state has had a Democratic attorney general. It will be the first time since 1969 that all three uh, statewide uh, offices, lieutenant uh, governor, lieutenant governor and attorney general and the two state senators will all be 
uh, all be Democrats. First well, time I'm since sure 1969. the Virginia Republican majority legislature won't let that happen <laughs> if they can help it. We'll see. <laughs> we will be watching that race in the weeks ahead. Okay, some horrible news uh, with uh, the super typhoon Haiyan, as covered in uh, our latest Green News report. Yes. Let's go. The destruction is almost complete, barely a building standing, and there's the stench of death in the air. If the world's out there, send help. The devastation of Super Typhoon Haiyan. This kind of event will happen more frequently unless we change the way we run our energy system. This is what humanity is doing. And the climate change signal. Plus... It's irresponsible to blame this typhoon uh, due to global warming or climate change. The denial industry sinks to new lows. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. As the UN meets again to hammer out a global climate treaty. All of that madness and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Just days after Typhoon Haiyan ripped through the Philippines, destroying homes, killing thousands, actor George Clooney had to weigh in, blaming the disaster on global warming, going on to call skeptics of global warming stupid and ridiculous. Yeah, but he was just being polite. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, as we went to air late last week, Super Typhoon Haiyan was just beginning to come ashore in the Philippines. The devastation since then is almost indescribable. Yes. The chief negotiator for the Philippines at this climate conference in Warsaw has said that if there was a Category 6 this storm would have qualified. Yes, Super Typhoon Haiyan was extraordinary. Uh, at this point, nearly 1,800 people are confirmed dead from the devastating killer typhoon, which broadsided the Philippines last Friday. The Philippines president has declared a national calamity amid the unprecedented scale of devastation. It's a humanitarian nightmare with roads, infrastructure, and communications obliterated and an estimated 800,000 people displaced and in desperate need of food, water, shelter, and medical aid. The Joint Typhoon Warning Center confirms that Haiyan is the most powerful tropical cyclone ever to make landfall in recorded world history. That's based on wind speeds, but Haiyan's two-story high storm surge was also unprecedented, a record 20 feet for the Philippines that survivors said rose with the speed of a tsunami. The next question is whether Haiyan's record intensity is related to climate change. It will take time for scientists to analyze the data on this specific particular storm. But studies do confirm that the oceans are warming and that warming oceans are intensifying cyclones. Climate scientist and hurricane expert Carrie Emanuel of MIT says, quote, as you warm the climate, you basically raise the speed limit on hurricanes. There's less confidence, though, whether warming oceans will make these superstorms more frequent. That said, Haiyan was the second Category 5 super typhoon to hit the Philippines in less than a year. One thing we know for sure, global warming did not make the storm less dangerous. And the other thing we know for sure is that this storm is being called the storm of the century. Is it my imagination, or have we seen more storms of the century, more droughts of the century, more floods of the century... 
over the past decade uh, than ever before. That's not your imagination. Many studies and even the global insurance industry all say that we are seeing an increase in these devastating extreme weather events. And yet you've got Fox News saying George Clooney is irresponsible for uh, talking about climate change in the wake of this disaster. Yeah, even before the storm was over, prominent deniers complained that these dire warnings about Haiyan were, quote, overhyped. And now, in a tactic that's kind of similar to the NRA, they're saying now is not the right time to talk about cutting greenhouse <laughs> gas emissions of that cl- cause global warming. Right, so it's too close to the tragedy. Let's not talk about it now. Uh, they can tell that to the Philippines' chief United Nations negotiator, Yeb Sano, who coincidentally happens to be halfway around the world in Warsaw, Poland, when Haiyan struck at the latest round of international climate treaty negotiations. Here's what he had to say on Monday. To anyone outside who continues to deny and ignore the reality that is climate change, I dare them, I dare them to get off their ivory towers and away from the comfort of their armchairs. I dare them to go to the islands of the Pacific, the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, and see the impacts of rising sea levels. The monster storms in the Gulf of Mexico and the eastern seaboard of North America, as well as the fires that have raised down under. And if that is not enough, they may want to see what has happened to the Philippines now. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. Madness indeed. For much more on today's report and those items we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Remember, you can download our reports anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can and should find us and like us on the Facebook and follow us 24-7 on the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, and how many deaths... Will it take till he knows that too many people have died? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Tough report today, huh? Yes. uh, The death toll is now up to 2,344. It's expected to go higher. And aid is slowly, slowly making it out. The uh, Marines are there, and they are limited to where they can land on uh, airfields that they can land at, but they they are trying. And how about the media? Are they trying? Are they getting any better at connecting the dots here? Pretty much no. That's what I figured. Thank you, Desi Doyen, our producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, Also, my thanks to G, our soundboard operator. And my guest today, the great Digby, Heather Parton of uh, Digby's blog, otherwise known as Hullabaloo. Stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 o'clock report. He says, yes, girls in prison. But I think he just said that because he wants you to stay tuned. So don't miss that. Uh, Until we meet again, you can find me on the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Also on Facebook at The Brad Blog. And, of course, at bradblog.com. This has been your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America.